The inspector's senses were immediately overwhelmed by the stench of blood and rot as he opened the large and heavy barn door. The grisly image before him was the worst he'd ever seen. Four people, all violently murdered, stacked one atop the other and then loosely covered with hay. There were two more dead within the family's nearby home, killed in their beds. But the most chilling aspect of this investigation was the evidence that the killer had lived among the dead for days after their murder. Just who, or what, committed the horrifying Hinterkaifeck murders? Welcome once more, cherished listeners, to Charnel FM's broadcast. I am Thomas, wriggling massive nonsense and your purveyor of the peculiar for the next 15 to 20 minutes or so. Today, I wish to speak to you all of a terrible murder mystery that is, without exaggeration or embellishment, one of the most unsettling and gruesome cases that I've ever seen. Before that, a few and special salutations. To everyone listening as they commute to work in the early morning, to everyone listening as they work burning away the midnight oil, and to everyone named William, you all have our special shout-out for this episode. The subject of shock that I bring you all this episode is the infamous and genuine mystery of the Hinterkaifeck farm murders that occurred over March 31st and April 1st, 1922. It centres around a Bavarian farmstead and the Gruber family that lived there, grandparents Andreas and Kazilia, their daughter Victoria, Victoria's children Joseph and Kazilia Jr, and their maid Maria. One of the most terrifying parts of this mystery is that it didn't happen all at once. There was a long and horrifying series of events that took place over the course of months before the murders. Footprints in the snow of an unknown origin, a purchased paper that nobody in the house had bought, strange noises in the walls and attic, claims of the place being haunted, and more. With all our stories, we'll start at the beginning and unravel this nightmarish tapestry for you, dearest listener. The Hinterkaifeck farm was a rural and isolated place near the town of Kaifeck, hence the farmstead's name. Their neighbours considered the family a distant sort that kept to themselves, but still hard-working people. Maria came to work for the Grubers after their first maid, Kriesens Riga, left her employment suddenly six months earlier. Maid Riga complained to Andreas regularly that, day after day, night after night, she would hear strange noises in the house, tapping, knocking, and scratching noises in the walls. The worst and loudest of noises came from the attic, and so Andreas would climb the steps, taking a light into the darkness, searching for the origin of the noises, but he found nothing each and every time. Despite this, Riga claimed that she always felt she was being watched as she worked at the farm, that an unseen and evil presence was waiting, biding its time. The maid left her letter of resignation suddenly, in it stating that the farmstead was haunted by something terrible and sinister, that she feared for her life and refused to work there a moment longer. After the first maid resigned and fled, the frightening events only escalated. In early March, Andreas noticed a newspaper from that morning that was inside their house. A newspaper that he, nor anyone else in the family, had purchased. He blamed it on the postman, and that he'd initially lost the paper in his rounds. But this couldn't be the case, as none of the Gruber's neighbours subscribed to the paper either. So, how did the paper come to be within their home? After coming home from a long and hard day's work, 
Andreas noticed that a set of footprints led far across their land to the edge of the forest that bordered it. Someone, or something, had walked out of the forest, across the empty land and straight to the farm's machine room, the door of which now bore a lock that had been broken open. The prints were set in fresh and unblemished snow, and nobody in the house claimed to have made them, or knew who might have. There wasn't an additional set of footprints that returned the way they'd come, or left the farmstead, which meant that whoever made them must still be within the house. Andreas swept the farmstead, room to room, building to building, but he could find no intruder. Where had they gone? Or were they still hiding within the house, waiting? Later, deep and heavy footsteps awoke Gruber in the dead of night. Footsteps right above them echoed throughout the house, the same noises that the maid had heard when she fled, and now, the rest of the family were hearing them also. Once more, Andreas took a light through the attic, searching desperately for whoever or whatever was making the ominous noises, but found nothing. Andreas recounted these terrifying events to his neighbours when they conversed, and though they offered him both assistance and firearms to protect him and his family, Gruber politely refused. He didn't even notify the police, which meant that, unfortunately, the Grubers would be dealing with this by themselves. One can't help but wonder if this living nightmare might have ended a little differently had he accepted. The last person to see the Gruber family alive was the sister of Maria, the new maid who arrived at the farm the day of the terrible incident. She was there to escort her sister safely to the premises, but had no idea that it would be the last time she, or anyone else, would see the family alive. Four days passed between the murder and the discovery of the bodies. On April 1st, coffee salesman Hans and Eduard Shirovsky arrived at the farmstead to take an order. When no one answered their calls, they'd walked around the farmstead, but found no one. Kazelia Jr. was absent from school without excuse or permission, and the family missed their Sunday worship at church. On the 4th of April, mechanic Albert Hofner journeyed to the farmstead to fix the family's food chopper. Like the salesman before him, his calls went unanswered and after waiting an hour, he eventually fixed the machine and left, but the community had begun to notice their mysterious absence. At 3.30pm on that same day, Lauren Schlittenbauer, his son Johann and stepson Joseph attempted to make contact with the family. After they returned to town and reported that they didn't see anyone, Schlittenbauer headed to the farm the same day with Michael Pohl and Jacob Siegel, where they finally made the grisly and horrifying discovery. Entering the barn, they found the bodies of Andreas, his wife Kazelia, his daughter Victoria, and their granddaughter Kazelia Jr. A search of the home soon revealed the bodies of baby Joseph, only two years old and murdered in his crib, and made Maria Baumgartner killed on her first day of work. As investigators searched the premises, court physician Johann performed the autopsies in the barn. He established that the murder weapon had been a mattock, which is a hand tool similar to a pickaxe. Some of you may know it as a grub tool. The heads of the deceased bore brutal injuries from the tool, and were eventually removed and sent to Munich for further examinations. Investigators believe that the killer somehow lured them one at a time to the barn in the dead of night, coercing them to the killing room one by one before venturing into their home to slay Maid Maria in her bed and baby Joseph in his crib. 
The reality of the situation became even more chilling as police made the discovery that the killer had actually stayed at the farmstead and lived there for days after the murders. The fireplace had been used, neighbours testified to recently seeing smoke rise from the Gruber's chimney, meals had been cooked in the kitchen, and both bread and meat had been cut from the pantry. Even the farm animals had been fed and watered, and with the killer even going so far to milk the cows. The killer had not only brutally murdered these poor people, but they had lived and slept in their house among the corpses, eating their food and using the facilities for days after it. The police initially believed that a robbery was the cause for the murders, but a large sum of money was found still within the house that the killer would certainly have taken if the motive was just monetary gain. With no clear motive, and despite repeated arrests, no murderer has ever been found. The list of suspects is long, and if I were to go through each and every one in detail, all of us would be here a very, very long time. Just to help you come to your own conclusion, dear listener, I'll quickly go over a few. One of the stranger theories is that Victoria's ex-husband, Carl Gabriel, committed the murders. About this time, I assume you're asking yourself, why is this strange? Isn't the ex-husband usually the first suspects in a murder? Very true, dear listener. Were it not for the fact that Carl Gabriel was actually killed in action by a shell attack in France during the First World War in 1914. Despite this, people still oft raise the point that a good number of soldiers reported killed in action were simply captured as prisoners of war or only injured instead, like Alfred Holland, Fred Joslin, and Lawrence Marriott. So, why would an ex-husband seemingly back from the dead seek vengeance upon his ex-wife? Well, for yet another sad and peculiar twist to this story. Victoria and her father Andreas Gruber were convicted by the town for the crime of incest in 1915, seven years before this cruel incident. Keep that in mind, seven years. Many people in the town believe that Joseph, Victoria's youngest son, aged only two, was the heir to that incestuous relationship. Those who tout this theory often say that, enraged by the idea of his wife and father-in-law producing a child in his absence, he sought to return to the farmstead and murder them both for it. Another suspect that ties into the aforementioned relationship is one Peter Weber, who was named by Joseph Betts in a hearing. Betts claimed that Peter Weber spoke to him of a remote farmstead and the old couple that lived there, and that he knew about the relationship between father and daughter. Weber claimed that there was a small fortune located there, and asked Bex to assist him in obtaining it. When Betts refused, Weber and he simply ceased speaking of it. Riga, the maid who'd left the Grubers, had named three other suspects, the Bickler brothers, Anton and Carl, and George Siegel. She stated that Anton and George had helped the Grubers during a harvest time, and so knew the layout of the farm very well. Riga also stated that Anton talked to her often of the Gruber family, and suggested that the family ought to be dead. She also claimed that George had broken into their home of November in 1920, stealing many valuable things from the Grubers, a claim that George denied. Another important note here is that George did state that he'd been the one that carved the handle for the mattock, the farm tool turned murder weapon used to carry out the killings, and he knew where it would be located also. The farmstead has long since been demolished, and hopefully the curse, if there ever was one, along with it. Today, a simple white shrine sits atop the spot of the murders, the symbol of the cross upon it, surrounded by colourful flowers. The family is buried in a plot in Weidhofen, 
but sadly the heads were lost during the Second World War and were never returned to their owners. In its whole, this is one of the saddest and most frightening tales I've ever read about. There are a few tidbits I've missed explaining here and there, and for good reason, that they aren't for… the weak of stomach. There are more gruesome, more chilling, and more terrible parts of this story that simply aren't fit for me to read here on the air, dear listener. But if you're truly curious, if, like me, you have a morbid fascination with crimes such as this one, then I encourage you to research it yourself. It's likely that we'll never know for sure who killed the Grubers, but as always, I encourage you all to make your own decisions. Do you have a suspect not named here, a theory we've not covered? Then let us know. With that, we'll move to today's Cryptid of the Week, a request that was sent to me by one Salvari, who asked that we cover the little people of Native American folklore, tiny humanoids that are often mischievous and sometimes murderous. Little people aren't specifically tied to North America, or the Americas as a whole. They're mentioned in various folktales and cultures around the world, such as in the Hawaiian Islands, Greece, Great Britain, Ireland, New Zealand, and many more. They're also, strangely, one of the more commonly cited cryptids, with reports cropping up often and frequently. Since you've specifically mentioned Native Americans, however, I'll focus my efforts there and branch outwards. I also apologise to anyone listening for my inevitable butchering of a beautiful language. The native peoples of North America have many stories of these little people, though their appearance and details change depending on which nation you speak to, whether they are good or evil, charitable or malicious, etc. Most agree, however, that they are hairy-faced dwarves, tiny people that are only a few centimetres or inches tall that live inside caves or on the shores of large bodies of water. They are very fond of children and will steal them away if they become lost in the woods or are abused at home. They are also secretive and shy, and some say if they are spotted, they will reward their finder if they choose not to mention their meeting to anyone else. The Crow Nation are said to have an ongoing relationship with them, and little people have been a part of Crow folklore for millennia, having played a large part in shaping the destiny of the Crow people through visions granted the iconic Crow Chief, Chief Plentiku. They call them Nirumbi, or the Little People of the Prior Mountains. The Crow see them as a ferocious and spiritually powerful dwarves that are the protectors and suppliers of powerful medicine and healing. They make offerings of beads, paint, and tobacco to the little people at Medicine Rock, Montana, to this day. The Cree people call them Managishi, and say that they are a race of humanoid little people with lanky arms and legs, a large head with no nose, and more than five fingers and toes on each hand or foot. They are a cruel trickster people that live between the rocks in rapids, and their favourite pastime is to crawl out of their damp lair and capsize the canoes of people canoeing through rapids, sending them spiralling to their deaths as they are tossed in the rapids, breaking on the rocks and drowning in the turbulent waters. The Lakota say they're a race of tree-dwelling little people, similar to fairies, and name them Canotilla. They usually appear as sprites or dwarves, and they are messengers from the spirit world, appearing to you in your dreams to convey a missive of great importance. As I've said, there are plenty more little people than just those of North America. Here in Great Britain, they're also known as brownies, goblins, gnomes, elves, leprechauns, and more, each with their own specific lore and folktales, but they are what you would still classify as little people cryptids. 
They, like the stories from Native Americans, are often tricksters who enjoy stealing children away. Some enjoy giving gifts similar to the way a monkey's paw works, in the sense that they will give you something you want or asked for, but in a way that means you were better off not asking for it to begin with. For example, the Trixie Fae might help your harvest grow quickly and in plenty, but if you disrespect them in some way, or refuse to reward their charity, it will quickly rot and leave you even worse than you were before. One account speaks of an equestrian grandmother who visited her stables one morning to find that someone, or something, had braided the manes on all the horses. The grandmother made sure that she never cut the braids, for it meant that the little people had blessed the animal, and that if she did remove them, then the horses would become lame. She always left out a little something for their nighttime visitors as payment too. It's a common tale told by the more superstitious here in Britain, especially in the land of Fay and Piskies here in Cornwall. If you ever find something new and interesting in the home that shouldn't be there, an interesting rock, a pretty seashell, a little bell or a sprinkling of glitter, it's a gift from the Fay, and one you should never, under any circumstances, accept. The Fae scheme, they manipulate, and they are easily offended. If you accept their gift, you are indebted to them, and you have just become their latest plaything. It will be a slow process, one that might even appear whimsical at first, the delicate sound of soft music, gentle laughter as you pass, but it will eventually transition from living dream to waking nightmare. The music becomes a noise in the dead of night, knocking in the walls and the rapid pitter-patter of little bare feet against your floor, staving off sleep and rest until you eventually go mad. I'm sure that it's interesting to any who research cryptozoology that the vast majority of nations and places on our globe hold a similar stories such as these I've mentioned, and even more so that they share similarities and traits. Is this an argument for their existence, perhaps? That all over the world there are stories and accounts of humans meeting these little people, or is it just a case of mass mistaken identity? Of things going bump in the night and a made-up explanation for something that lacks one? What do you think, dear listener? As always, if you have a story or mystery you want me to read on the air, a particular cryptid investigated, a discussion started, or a piece of eerie strangeness you want to share, then email me at channelfm at gmail.com. You can follow our Twitter, which is also at channelfm, and contact me there. With that, we finish our episode, and I bid you all good night with this week's frightening fact. You've likely heard the supposed fact that your fingernails continue to grow for a short while after you're dead, but this isn't really true. What actually happens is that, over time, your skin loses moisture and shrinks, pulling back the skin around your nails until your fingers become gaunt and corpse-like, which gives the appearance of growing nails. Stay safe, take care, and remember, Look after your nails. The songs used in this episode are titled Terminal, SCP-X7X, and SCP-X6X, and are made by Kevin MacLeod. They are licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. His website is in computech.com, and he makes excellent music. Give him a look and a listen.